question is, should I be worried that he dropped from the 90th to the 50th percentile? Um, should I start supplementing with something else, maybe more breast milk or formula? I just found out that I have coleostasis and kind of freaking out about it. My first child. I'm sorry, but to do those interventions after only 30 minutes, she probably was still on her back in the bed, not allowed to get up. Maybe she hadn't even had tried breastfeeding yet. I don't consider that a retained placenta, and I think that was excessive. My OB told me that I can labor in any position I choose. However, when it comes to pushing, she told me that I have to be on my back because it was, quote, safer. Can the placenta become lodged in the birth canal during pregnancy, like placenta previa? What? Okay, you know what? We can't do a quickie that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. <laughs> right. Okay. And uh, now we can, now we can, now we can begin and say, Hey, it's Wednesday. Do you ever wonder how many listeners we have that are not aware of our outtakes? Let's talk about that. But literally since episode number you guys, one, if you have missed a single outtake, you need to go back to episode one and skip to the end <laughs> and listen to the outtake of every single episode. If you're not hearing the outtakes, you're missing one of the best parts of the show. In some episodes, it's the best part of the show. Yeah. And in others, it's it's so boring. I'm just thinking I <laughs> have a more interesting outtake. But we just weren't that funny that day or interesting. Every now and then we just don't have a good one. My no. favorite ones are where you're mispronouncing things. There are lots of those. <laughs> there <laughs> no, are not, too many. <laughs> not mispronouncing where you're like fumbling over your fumbling word. over words. Never mis- no, not you never mispronounce. There's definitely fumbling over words lots fumbling. of times. Or making up words. Sometimes oh, you've done a ton words. of making up words. Yeah. But I mean, happens. that's fun. <laughs> Go ahead and make them up. We need okay, to- friends. It's Wednesday. Wednesday evening. Cynthia and I are recording this evening. We're, we're that's trying. so specific, Trisha. We're trying. This. Which evening? This evening. This evening. Okay. We're trying well, things a little differently. Why is it different? Because lately we've been doing it during the day for oh, a while. Yeah. We've done some evenings before. This is not like brand new. It's always nice. But it's nice. Yeah. We have quiet homes. People are out. I'm having a glass of wine. We have so husbands taking care of dinner. Yes. Oh, I don't. Oh. <laughs> My husband's out coaching basketball. Oh, he usually does. Yes. Not tonight. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. My name is Megan, and I am about 33 and a half weeks pregnant. Um, I love your show. It's completely changed the way I see birth, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm actually in um, more of a uh, functional field for holistic medicine. So my question is this. I keep um, my house quite cold in the winter. I actually keep my bedroom between 60 and 64 degrees Fahrenheit um, because it really helps support my deep sleep that I track. Um, so I'm due December 1st and the baby's obviously going to sleep in a bassinet in our room for the first few months. And my husband and I did a lot of research, but we couldn't find anything about how cold 
is too cold for a baby. I found more information on overheating. So could you tell me realistically, how cool can we keep our bedroom with respect to the safety of our newborn? Thank you so much. Another Megan. Another Megan. All right. So many Megans. I love it. (laughs) Like me who sleep with extremely cold bedrooms. I like it. It's good. It's healthy. And honestly, I can't tell you what the bottom line is for the temperature that's safe for your baby. Um, but I can tell you that I slept, my bedroom is 60, 60 to 64 year round. Well, actually not year round. It's about 75 in the summer. <laughs> I kind of like hot nights anyway, but hot summer nights, I don't mind it. Occasionally I'll use the AC, but I really, Trisha, you turned over to hot open. rather than cold. We're talking cold, not hot. <laughs> so Look how nice. easily you did that. Okay. Nice try. Get back, back to, to cold. cold. Okay. I, do you know, I don't know. You need your baby. You know, you don't want your baby to be too cold, obviously, but I don't know that there's a specific temperature. Most people would probably say to keep the room around room temperature, which is 70 to 72. I think 66 to 68 is probably fine. I wouldn't let it be in the fifties. <laughs> depends on how many blankets and clothes your baby's wearing, how close they are sleeping to you. We're afraid of a baby. What? What could happen? Well, we also don't want what them to be cold? uncomfortably cold because then they're going to burn too many calories. They're going to wake more often. I will say this. It is really important in the first few days that the temperature is higher than 70 degrees because in those first few days, babies don't thermoregulate well. So when you first bring your baby home, you definitely don't want them in a 60 degree room. They need a little time to adapt post-birth so that they can actually start to control their body temperature better. After a few days, maybe a week, go with whatever room temperature you're comfortable in because ultimately if your baby's sleeping in your room, you need them to get comfortable with that. Make sure they're appropriately dressed and covered. And I think it will be fine if you notice that your baby is feeling cold to the touch when you wake up. Um, like not their face, their face is exposed. So their, their face and their skin will feel a little colder to the touch. I'm talking core temperature, touch their chest, touch their body, see how they feel. If they feel appropriately warm, then the temperature is fine. If they feel cold, turn it up a little bit. Great. And co-sleeping would make a big difference either way with that. Totally. Hey, Trisha and Cynthia, this is Jordan. I'm 4'11", 95 pounds, very petite, um, did gymnastics for the majority of my life. I'm in my mid-20s, and my husband and I are um, about to start trying for a child. As you can, of course, I put my height and weight in there because already I've had people approach me saying really disempowering statements about how um, I'm too small to birth naturally. Um, they say, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to need a C-section. I even had my functional medicine doctor say that um, he was worried about how small I was and how difficult pregnancy was going to be for me. So I can't imagine what this is going to look like going to my normal OB. Um, if he tries to say I'm too small for natural birth, should I... Um, try to work with him still and hire a doula, or should I just try to seek out natural birth um, at a birthing center, which is really, really what I want to do. It's what I'm desiring. Um, Please uh, help me navigate this and any insight you think would be helpful to me and some of your extra petite um, viewers. Thanks, you guys. Love your show. Bye-bye. What do you have to say about this? I think it's a big red flag. If anyone ever looks at you and talks about your height, weight, or apparent pelvic size, 
because height and weight has nothing to do with how easily you'll birth your baby pelvic chain. The pelvis changes when you're giving birth, even to be under five feet tall, go back a million years and see how tall humans were. So I just, I just think that we have to not succumb to this. And I do think it's a red flag and it's a good reason to look for another provider for sure. I don't think a doula can protect you from a harmful provider. I agree. I think that if that is going to be what we always say, the fear, a provider's fear of a big baby is more dangerous than the big baby itself. And, you know, a petite small woman is likely going to have a smaller baby. We generally grow babies that are appropriate for our size. Either way, take the opportunity to look for another provider. When in doubt, find another <laughs> right. There's when in doubt, look for a midwife. One. Try a midwife. Next. Hi, um, I had a question. Um, my OB told me that I can labor in any position I choose. However, when it comes to pushing, she told me that I have to be on my back because it was, quote, safer. When I asked what safer meant, she said in case they needed to do a McRoberts maneuver or super pubic pressure. Um, so I looked up what that maneuver was, um, which is your basic, like, on your back, legs all the way up. Um, couldn't, and it's for shoulder dystocia. So couldn't I just get into that position if shoulder dystocia, dystocia occurs? Is it not realistic to have enough time or energy or the ability to reposition during the pushing phase? Thank you. Okay. Well, if you've been following us on social media or following this podcast, you know how we feel about any provider forcing you into any position in birth, especially on your back, because most of the time women are not choosing that position naturally. We feel it's very important that you choose the position to birth your baby in based on what feels right to you in the moment. And it is your provider's job to receive your baby in whatever position feels right to you. Should there be a problem with the birth of the baby requiring a McRoberts maneuver, which it is correct that that is the position that is usually first line with shoulder dystocia, then you can move on to your back and use that position. But shoulder dystocia is a lot less likely to happen if you are free to move in accordance with what your baby and your body are telling you throughout labor and when you're getting ready to push your baby out. The best thing about the McRoberts position, if there's anything to say about it, is that it shortens the birth path or the birth canal, just like squatting does. So if there's any merit to give it, it's that you're pulling up your knees and you're shortening the distance that your baby has to traverse from the cervix to crowning. It's also that you can apply super pubic pressure to the shoulder. So above the pubic bone, you can push down on the baby when the shoulder is lodged against that pubic bone, you can push down and push that shoulder under the pubic bone. Right. But I'm talking about a regular birth. So for the doctor to say, let's put you in a position that will serve us if your baby ends up with shoulder dystocia, which is absolutely unlikely, generally speaking. And there are other positions, if not better positions to address shoulder dystocia, like a lunge position, a runner's lunge, for example, listen to episode seven of our podcast. Um, And there are others for shoulder dystocia where the women are forward leaning. Um, To say, let's just have you in that position just in case, remember that most women are not going to experience shoulder dystocia and to be on your back drives up the likelihood of fetal distress. 
So why should that be the default position? Restricting your movement drives up the likelihood of a shoulder dystocia. So Hmm. forget about (laughs) being in that position to prevent it. Get into that position if you need to, because there's an issue, but don't be in that position as a preventative measure for it. One thing I've noticed is that providers sometimes say, let's not take any chances. Let's do this just in case. But in fact, what they're recommending increases the likelihood of the adverse outcome to begin with. We need to go back to the fact that giving birth on your back with your legs up in the air is the easiest position for your practitioner to manage your birth. That gives them the straightest view that allows them to have the easiest access to do what they need to do. If they want to cut an episiotomy, if they want to rotate the baby, if they want to use a vacuum, they want to use forceps. If you're already in that position, all of this is much easier managed. They can do cervical checks easy. They can check the position of the baby's head easily. All of it is is about their convenience and they don't know what to do. Many of them do not, if they're not a practitioner who regularly supports physiologic birth, they are not comfortable when they can't see all that's going on and have that access. If you're on your hands and knees, if you're squatting, if you're on your side, whatever position you're in, kneeling in the tub, they can't see and feel and touch and access the way that they can if you're on your back. And so this is about them. And even if it were about them and their convenience, women want to know, is that okay for my baby? Is Can I still do that even if it's more convenient for my provider? And what you need to know is that position of being on your back is linked to A, prolonged labor and B, fetal distress. And those are the top two reasons for cesarean section in our country. So if we get women off their backs when they're giving birth and potentially reserve that as one of the few positions, several positions they can utilize, if there is shoulder dystocia, then they're going to be less likely to experience an adverse outcome in the first place. I always add the caveat when we talk about giving birth on your back, though, that many women actually end up finding that they choose this position. And if you choose this position, by all means, if it feels right, go for it. For They're tired. They want to just be in the bed. That's fine. If you choose that position, then that is your body telling you that this is the right position for you. That's fine. It is not a horrible thing to be on your back, but to be restricted throughout your labor to your back and forced to birth your baby in that position, that is, we're not okay with that. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. Um, thanks for opening this hotline up. I really love the podcast. I just started listening. I'm about seven months pregnant, and actually, in light of your recent episode with the Pitocin risks, I just found out that I have coleostasis and kind of freaking out about it. My first child, um, I'm being told now I need to be induced at 37 weeks. I'm already high we- high risk due to my age. Um, and also now I'll have to be doing the non-stress testing and weekly biophysicals for the baby. Um, any advice or guidance would be much appreciated. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. 
We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So here we have a mother who is seven months pregnant with cholestasis or ICP. Cholestasis is a um, condition of pregnancy that is a liver disease, and it usually presents with itching in the second and third trimester, like excessive itching during pregnancy. Um, It's diagnosed by lab tests, liver function tests, and uh, elevated bile acids and, and abnormal liver function tests are the, and the itching are the key keys to diagnosis. It is a condition that definitely increases risk in pregnancy. There's an increased risk of stillbirth 
for babies, increased risk of meconium, meconium aspiration, respiratory distress syndrome in babies. And so it's always this balance of how severe is the cholestasis versus how far along you are in the pregnancy and the risk of preterm birth. So it's often recommended that if um, it can be managed up to about 37 weeks, then women are given the option to be induced at 37, 38 weeks to prevent the possibility of stillbirth, really, um, or problems with the baby later on. It's, It's generally familial. So if somebody in your family had it or you had it, you're more likely to have it in a subsequent pregnancy, but it's still quite rare. It's only about a 0.2 to 0.3% incidence. Um, as far as her question around Pitocin and the risks of Pitocin in relation to this, I mean, the risk of Pitocin are the risks of Pitocin and they just are that, but you have to weigh those risks along with the risks of staying pregnant with your cholestasis. There is a medication that you can use to treat it. So if the treatment is working, you can buy yourself some time. We know that we do want the babies to be ideally beyond 37, 38 weeks. Um, you know, hopefully she doesn't have to be induced before that time. You certainly can still have a vaginal birth. Um, but I think it's really just a week by week evaluation and, and determining how severe the condition becomes. And if you're responsive to treatment, then you can stay pregnant longer. So of course, in modern maternity care today, (laughs) obstetrics, particularly, we're always, we're always labeling women who are older as being more high risk. Um, she may be a little more high risk for cholestasis because of her age, but that doesn't mean that she is necessarily more at risk of having severe problems with the baby. Um, there, the, the, the main issue with the baby is the potential for stillbirth, which does occur at a rate of three to 4% with this condition. So it's, you know, it's three to four out of a hundred. What's happening internally where the mom is itchy on the outside? The bile the salts, question. the liver, the liver the- function and the bile salts building up in the bloodstream. Okay. And then that passes through the placenta and impacts the baby. Okay. So right. it's really, it's not a black, it's not totally black and white. Your provider may say it's black and white. You have this diagnosis. Let's get you induced as soon as possible. But if you want to advocate for yourself and say, hey, what are my bile acid levels? What are my liver function tests looking like? How's the baby looking? I'm asymptomatic. The medication is working. Maybe you stay pregnant longer. It's the kind of thing where it's a, you know, it's a constant ongoing evaluation of are the risks of staying pregnant greater than the risk of induction? Hi, I have a question. I am hopefully going to have an HVAC at the end of January. Um, My midwife is not pressuring me, but uh, she did talk about a uh, ultrasound as far as figuring out where the placenta is to make sure it's not attaching in front or in front of the scar. Um, She's worked with a lot of VBACs. She says she doesn't need the ultrasound, but I was originally good with not having one and now I'm second guessing myself. Uh, so what are your thoughts on an ultrasound um, to find out where the placenta is for a VBAC? Thank you. 
She's planning a home birth H back. I don't, I don't know. It sounds like overkill to me, but I don't know. Is this a thing? I mean, I know that there are so many people who support VBAC and they're not doing this. I haven't yeah. actually even heard about this. So it doesn't sound like a concern to me, but is it out there? Is this really something so, we're looking at? Oh, I don't yeah. think it's ter- actually terribly uncommon. And her midwife was very, sounded like her midwife was open. If you want to do it, great. If you don't, I'm fine. The reason she might suggest doing it is because if the placenta is implanted right over the scar, you have a higher chance of placenta accreta, where the placenta is stuck basically in the uterus and you have a higher risk of postpartum bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage. So is this Um, because the placenta has to attach by capillaries and it can't do that where there's scar, scar tissue, so it, it attaches so it in a, inappropriately so, yeah. or, or it might partially release, which is not what you want. You don't want either one that it won't ever release and that it won't ever attach or that, it, or that, so, it, I mean, it, it can't abrupt attach. or that it's not, it's not, it's not attached well enough that you could have abruption or you could have partial. So it's like so, one of those clearance things. Let's just make sure it's not over the scar. Exactly. So that would be an yes. anterior placenta. No. Yes. It would need to be because the scar is on the front of the uterus. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's up to her. I mean, if you would feel better knowing that your placenta was not anywhere near the scar, then you can not have that worry during your home birth. What if a VBAC or HBAC mom does have an anterior placenta, which isn't a big deal at all. It's quite, it's very common. So should anyone listening who's planning a VBAC and knowing she has an anterior placenta, be like, oh my gosh, this is a, this could be over my scar. I have to go to get this checked. Well, remember that most placentas implant in the top of the uterus. The scar is in the lower uterus. So the chances of the placenta implanting over your cesarean scar are pretty low. And just for anyone who doesn't know yet, HBAC is home birth after cesarean. Okay. So we have a lot of quickies. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Is it normal to feel a brief wave of nausea right before I let down? We're on three months of exclusive breastfeeding. I had that in the first day or two. You're nodding. So I guess it can last longer, but yeah. What do you, what causes I mean, that? it's more, it's, it's hormones. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a long time for it, it, it to last, but some people are more sensitive to it than others. It is still totally, it is normal. It's annoying, but it's normal. It's pretty awful. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. It's not fun. I mean, there's yeah. some people who experience some really uncomfortable feelings in breastfeeding, not related to like nipple pain from latch, but mood changes, nausea, really dis, dis overwhelming feelings of dislike for breastfeeding. Some people stop breastfeeding because of it. Um, so three months isn't a really long time. I mean, it, it is, but for her, it may be going the entire duration of her breastfeeding. I don't know. Thanks. It might get better after three months. A lot of things resolve after three months. That's true. Can the placenta become lodged in the birth canal during pregnancy, like placenta previa? What? That doesn't make <laughs> any sense. I think she means during birth. What? But that's not what placenta previa is. Okay. You know what? We can't do a quickie that doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. Can, um, okay. Here, there's a second part of the question. The birth? Actually, okay. Can the placenta become lodged in the birth canal during pregnancy, like placenta previa, but actually partially in the cervix, not just sitting over it? Doc has told my friends this. Oh, I see. How 
how on earth, what do they mean? I think what she means is can, if the placenta, so placenta previa is the placenta right over the cervix, can the placenta actually get grow down into the cervix and get lodged in the cervix? So then when your cervix opens, your placenta is going to be ripped from the sides of the uterine. Why did, why did anyone ask us this question? Uh, because her doctor told her nightmares. Her, her doctor told her friend this. I've never heard of such a thing. That's ext- I have not heard of this happening. It would be extremely unlikely. Your cervix is meant to be sealed, shut, tight, closed during pregnancy. So for a placenta, even if it is a previa over the cervix, for it to grow down into the cervix would be so unusual. I just pictured the provider out there, the doctor out there who says to the one woman, like, you know, we really need to be careful that your placenta doesn't end up in your lungs. <laughs> This is the kind of thing I feel like we're dealing with next. Okay. Is 40 plus five too late to start evening primrose oil? No, get on it. Yeah. Get on it. We shared really good research on that in the August Q and a episode, really good stuff. You know, when we, I, when we responded to this on Instagram, somebody sent back a screenshot of what to expect website that talked all about the dangers of evening primrose oil and why you shouldn't do it. And yet we shared the actual research on it and there were no such dangers. Right. That's can't, can't so trust that website. Classic. No, yeah. you cannot. All right. Is there a position in which a baby can't physically be born vaginally? Transverse. Yes. Transverse. Next. And then somebody also pointed out um, face presentation or chin presentation. That could be another one that can be very difficult. Um, I mean, it happens. The chin ideally is tucked. So this is the opposite of tucked. It's like their neck is craned. Yeah. Most providers would not do a vaginal birth that way because it can be dangerous, but it has happened. But transverse is a no-go. Low-lying cervix during pregnancy. What do I need to know? Low-lying? Where is the cervix exactly? Oh, low-lying cervix. I was thinking she meant placenta. Does she mean like placenta? No, I think she must mean cervix. Low-lying placenta is a non-issue if it's not over the cervix. She must mean the cervix because her provider said, we don't want you to have a low-lying cervix. And then she wrote, what does that even mean? Right. Either way, it's fine. So if the cervix, (laughs) right. If the cervix is in the vagina, the baby's not much closer to crowning. (laughs) I've never heard that either. I don't know, but I don't know. It might be legitimate. I don't know about it. No, I mean, yeah. If you have like a, a little bit of a prolapse, it could be definitely lower. Um, she didn't say prolapse. No, we need these doctors to stop saying weird stuff to all these women. (laughs) So they stop asking weird questions that we don't know how to answer. I told you, um, one of my clients years ago said the doctor said he doesn't do delayed cord clamping because if the baby gets too much blood, he's going to have to drain the excess, excess blood out of the baby. Anyway. All right. Continue. Should you burp your baby after every feed? No. Right. You certainly do not need to get a burp up after every feed. And oftentimes burp babies will burp regardless of whether you burp them or not. They'll burp on the breast. They'll burp laying down. They'll burp sideline. They'll spit up, whatever the burp comes up. If they are acting particularly fussy after a feed or during a feed, you may want to take them off and put them up on your shoulder and try to get a burp out. But if they're not really indicating that they need to burp, they probably don't need to burp. How do I move my baby out of my ribs? This is very common in late pregnancy as your baby is getting bigger and your uterus is really stretched to the max. um, And depending on your torso length, you may have your baby right up there in your ribs and it can cause a really uncomfortable burning sensation as the muscles and fascia stretch. So um, 
An old midwife's trick is to put ice right on that spot. And the baby tends to move away from it. Because the baby doesn't like to be cold. I guess (laughs) it works. Does precipitous labor mean you will tear beyond a superficial or first degree? No, of course not. I had a precipitous labor in my first. I didn't tear at all. I had a precipitous labor in my third. I did not tear at all. Um, So first of all, precipitous labor is defined as a labor that is three hours or less from start to finish. So that's pretty fast. And usually when you have a precipitous labor, the babies are born quite quickly. If the baby is born too quickly, sometimes you can tear, right? But you can tear in, it doesn't mean that you're going to tear. You can tear in a very long labor yeah, too. You can tear in any labor. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with your position and your baby's position more than, more than the speed of the labor. So absolutely not. I am postpartum and my midwife says I don't have a cycle, so I can't track it. Track what? Her ovulation. She must be talking about track her cycle. So she knows when she's ovulating. So yes, if you're not menstruating, if you, if your cycle is not in its 28 day cycle, it is definitely more difficult to track. Some people still do ovulation test kits and might be able to catch the first ovulation before the cycle comes back. But for the most part, if you're not having a cycle, there's nothing to track. What do you suggest to process my home birth that turned to emergency C-section and I am traumatized? She can process her birth story with us. You can process your birth story professionally. Yes. With us or wherever else you can at one end of pursuing this, you can go to do EMDR therapy, which we highly recommend. And at an easier end, you can teach yourself to do emotional freedom technique. All of these help to release the emotions of trauma, no matter what you're experiencing journal, talk to the right audience. Sometimes your family members are not the right audience because they just want to focus on the fact that you're healthy and the baby's healthy. Um, You've got to go to people who understand and who recognize that you can feel disappointed, angry, resentful, regretful, and you don't need the guilt on top of it. When someone is reminding you that you're still alive at the end of it. Yeah. It's complicated. You need the right audience. That's why support groups are so powerful. Support groups are a great first step. And just talking about your story, sharing, sharing with a supportive environment. That's, that's, that's how we heal. All right. One more, one more. Can baby latch on before the placenta is out? Midwives wouldn't let that happen. What? What? what your baby should latch on before the placenta is out, especially if you're having a hard out. time getting the placenta out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they wouldn't allow that to happen. I mean, if your baby's not really eager to latch on, you don't need to rush it. That is another thing. Don't rush no, it. The midwives didn't allow it. What are they doing? It facilitates the expulsion of the placenta. Don't second guess yourselves guys. Like if you if things are happening naturally between you and your baby and someone is standing there saying, wait, don't do that. Just ask yourself what any ancestor would have done for the past 3 million years. Don't allow people to make you second guess what's feeling instinctual. And there's no shortage of people who are going, who are willing to do that. But wow. So disappointing coming from a birth professional. It's who says exactly that? the wrong advice. It's, it's the opposite. Unbelievable. There's as if there's any risk whatsoever to doing that. I just like, ugh, it's so upsetting. Well, that's why we're here, folks. <laughs> Have a beautiful Wednesday. Thank you for being here. Come hang out with us every month on Patreon. 
Oh, yeah. That is where it is at. Cynthia's spilling the tea on my exciting life. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. It must be mind-blowing to people from other countries like Europeans where they have national health care. It must be the strangest concept to them that the laws change from state to state to state. That must be so weird to them that that's how it works over here. Imagine that. Like, Imagine if you think about all the states in Germany that you have totally different rights from one state to the other. It's just, it's, it's such a bizarre concept, but that's how it is over here. As we all know too well, as we all know too well. It definitely complicates things.